Those who study the New Testament, if you study it a lot, you, you, you kind of come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. Over and over again, he uses illustrations from sports uh, to make his point. He uses phrases from wrestling, from boxing, from running. He talks about winning the race. He talks about winning the prize. He talks about winning crowns. He talks about the, the discipline necessary to win. He talks about the danger of being disqualified from a race. I don't know if he played any sports himself, but it's clear he was familiar with the athletic world of the first century. And when he wanted to sum up his life, right at the end of it, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. First phrase from boxing, second from running. Now, I say all of that to raise a familiar point, and that is this. Football is the answer to all things. <laughs> Sports in general, football in particular, they illustrate some great spiritual truths. Football, after all, teaches us some valuable lessons in discipline, in training, in perseverance and teamwork of, of, the law, of the value of having a lofty goal to pursue, learning how to keep victory and defeat in, in proper perspective. And like coaches like to say, football is a game of four quarters. It doesn't matter if you're ahead at halftime. You've got to be ahead after 60 minutes, not even 45. And in many ways, the Christian life is like that. A lot of believers, they start off with a bang. They just get, get right going. But you've got to end well. That's important. And too many people enter the Christian life with this great enthusiasm only to disappear somehow along the way because they lack some purpose in their life. We have too many amateur Christians who are just like an inch deep and a mile wide. Not very deep. Because following Jesus is not a hobby. It's not like collecting stamps or baseball cards. I can take you to my house and show you both of my collections of those. Not, not impressive. Following Jesus demands a total commitment in our lives. So how do we win the race? How do we fight? This morning, we're in the last half of the book of Philippians. We'll start in verse 12 of Philippians 3. If you have your Bibles, you can get there. How do we win the race? How do we receive the crown? And I think there's four principles that kind of come out of our text that, that help us to know how we can finish well. And the whole point of this section of Philippians is this. Jesus is my salvation, but he is also the goal of my life. Because I press on to win the prize that obedient servants and followers of him are offered. And so in our text this morning, he continues the thought that it began last week. And we need to be very careful how we interpret this section of Philippians. Because you have to discover, well, what is the prize that we are supposed to seek? And once we figure that in, then you, then you can ask, well, how, how do I pursue that prize? How do I obtain it? So let's start. There's four principles in our text, how to win the prize. So let's explore those. And as we do, I think we will figure out what this prize is that we are pursuing. 
So principle number one, it's, it kind of clarifies what the prize is. So it's important to Paul. It should be important to us. How do you finish well? Principle one, check your direction. You want to finish well, you've got to check your direction, where you're headed in life. If you want to win the prize, evaluate over and over where you're, where you're headed. Verse 12, Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul doesn't say here what is, it is that, that's obtained. Some translations will say, say um, pursued or seized. You have to go to the context to figure out what is he, what is he pressing on for? And I think that means we got to go back to verse 11 and the verse we looked at last Sunday when he said in verse 11, we are attaining to the resurrection. But he uses a word for resurrection that occurs only once in the entire Bible. He takes the word resurrection and he adds a prefix to it, the word out. It's the ek or the out resurrection. What does that mean? I am pursuing, I'm not sure I have this out-resurrection. I think, well, I argued last week that the theological problems we have with that verse in 11, I think we can find that solution in Hebrews chapter 11. In this section of, of where he's going through all the heroes of the faith. And he uses the word, the writer to the Hebrews does, the better resurrection. Hebrews eleven thirty-five. Women received back their dead raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Huh. The believers who worked for that better resurrection, how did they do that? That was accomplished when they suffered. Paul wanted them to know that it was their participation in his sufferings, as he puts it in in Philippians, it was their becoming conformed to his death that resulted in their experience of an out-resurrection or a better resurrection in Hebrews. We learned that, that, that really Jesus received more than his resurrection body in his resurrection because of his humility because of his obedience to the point of death, even death on a Christ, what happened to him? He got a resurrection body, yes, but what else? He got exalted. He got a name that's above every name. This is, this is a better resurrection than just a body because of his humble obedience, and I think there's a connection there. In the same way Paul says, as I participate in the sufferings of Jesus, he would attain the out-resurrection or the better resurrection of the dead. And if you want to achieve that, it's, it's based on suffering. It's contingent on humility. It's contingent upon obedience. So in verse 12, this same status is the goal, this out-resurrection. It's the same goal in verse 13. It's the same goal in verse 14. He's talking about, every, about the same thing, but he doesn't really name it till you get to verse 14. And we'll see that when we get there. But Paul is very clear that in other places, eternal salvation is not won by our own efforts. So he cannot be talking about salvation here. As the if somehow of verse 11, 
made clear. If somehow I attain to the resurrection, the out-resurrection, Paul simply doesn't have assurance that, that he will attain the status he so desires. And so he presses on. This can't be about eternal salvation. But Paul did know something about the depth of evil in his heart. He knew how sin lurked within. Therefore, he had no assurance that he would persevere to the end. He wouldn't persevere in good works all the days of his life. I don't know what's going to happen five or ten years from now in my life. But I have to evaluate where I am and make sure I'm headed in the right direction. But he did know the perfect work of Christ. He had assurance of his salvation. That wasn't at issue here. And because he knew of the perfect work of Christ, he knew he was headed toward heaven. And so Jesus had seized Paul. He had made him a faithful disciple. And someday the Savior is going to reward him with crowns, with a throne, with authority in the kingdom. And the truth is that the Savior has seized us all for that very thing. And someday he offers to reward us with the very same thing. And when he was old, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight, the, the text we read, finished the race, kept the faith. At that point in his life, so near his death, he realized, I'm there. I've been faithful. And then he adds in verse 8, now there is in store for me, what? The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is exactly the very thing for which he has been seized by Christ for that day. Verse 13, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, do not consider, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead. Now, I haven't arrived, he says, at this valuable status that I've been talking about. But here he goes on to describe the single-minded zeal that it's going to require to get there. And he hasn't literally forgotten the past. He just talked about the past. But he will not allow this past to distract his present. After a race, you might think about how, you know, you did. I should have run it this way, or in my life, you should have swum this way or that way. But you don't do that during the race. During the race, you got your eye on the goal, where I'm headed, what direction I'm going. And so at this point in his life, he doesn't dwell on his former misguided efforts to be righteous, verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, all those things, or his most recent success, you know, I'm devoted to Christ in verse 10. He will not focus on any of that because it would distract him from the race that's still ahead of him. Keep your eyes on the race. And to excel in any area of life, what do you have to say? You have to say, this one thing I do, not this 20 things I do. A great artist has to say, this one thing I do. A championship athlete has to say, this one thing I do. A single parent raising their child has to say, this one thing I do. A student wants to graduate with honors has to say, this one thing I do. And Paul, the apostle, says greatness in any area 
is going to come from those who say, this one thing I do. In this case, it meant looking to the heavenly goal for winning the prize. This one thing I do. 150 years ago, a man from a wealthy family went to Yale University. Parents were so proud. They intended, you know, get your degree. You can, you've set yourself up. You can get a great job here in America. You have a comfortable career. But in those days, he was gripped by, by the Savior in his heart for what he heard about what was going on in China. And so when he heard all of that, he says, I'm going. And he gets up, he leaves Yale, and he heads to China. But he never makes it. He gets sick on the way, and he dies before he ever gets there. And in his death, they found a note in his, in his belongings that summarized the direction of his life. He wrote, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. How many of us could say the same thing about our pursuit of Christ? This one thing I do, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. Verse 14, Paul keeps going. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me home, heavenward in Christ Jesus. There he finally calls it the prize. That's what he's seeking. But notice how strenuous the tone is. He uses words like seize and, and strain and pursue. This is hard work. This isn't just something that happens. It's clear that eternal salvation is in the... You don't strain and work and earn eternal salvation. That's contrary to everything the New Testament says. But Paul is describing for the Philippian believers is hard work and suffering that's required not to obtain citizenship in the kingdom, but to gain this better resurrection, the out-resurrection, to gain the prize, to, get, to reign with Christ, to be given authority, as Jesus put it, over ten cities, to be given crowns and a throne. These are the things that require single-minded diligence. Paul works for that prize. In 1 Corinthians 9, he calls it a crown. He calls it a reward in, in 1 Corinthians 3. He calls it the reward of, a, of an inheritance in Colossians 3. And in our context, he had no assurance that he was going to succeed in this at this point in his life. And in 2 Timothy 2, he reminds Timothy that he needs to compete according to the rules to win the crown. These are not conditions set forth for salvation. No way. They are conditions set down for receiving a reward for the hard work you've done in living for Christ. And if this text, test, text does nothing else, it, it ought to put, put to, to, to bed forever any dream of a sinless perfection in life. He says, I'm not there yet. I know exactly what, what my heart is saying. And like many, unlike many contemporary leaders today, Paul had no problem sharing his shortcomings. He isn't perfect, and he knows it. And this becomes the place where spiritual growth can begin, when you're honest. And twice he says, I press on. I'm not where I want to be, but I press on. I'm going to keep moving in that direction. And that is critically important in the spiritual life. Set your direction. 
Check it often. Make sure you're moving in God's direction. Because everyone goes somewhere in life. Where are you going? And the question you need to ask is, where will you be when you get where you're going? Check your direction. Principle number two in the text, follow someone faithful. You've got to check your direction. Second, you've got to follow someone faithful. Verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to, to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. See, at the core of this chapter, Paul wants these partners in ministry, as we're doing this together, I want you to live your lives rejoicing in the Lord. That's what he said over and over. But that isn't going to happen if they follow people who, who are around them who are proud of their achievements, who on a human level think they're, they're, they're hot stuff. Instead, we have to follow those who take pride in the cross, who are following the Savior closely. And Paul, he's very winsome in this text. He's very encouraging. He's very pleasant. He could have been rather blunt, which he can do sometimes. He could have said, you guys got to think the way I'm thinking. But he doesn't in verse 15. He kind of draws them in. He says, I know you all. You're not babes in Christ. You're mature in the faith. So, so let's think this way. And now there is a little, before, a little bit of force because he says if they don't take it this way, God will make that clear to you. I'm not sure what that means. But in the course of life, God is going to deal with us. And then he says in verse 17, follow my example. Follow my example. Seems like a shocking thing sometimes to say. You want to learn to pray? Have you ever told anybody you want to learn to pray? Follow my example. Let's spend time together. You want to study the Bible? Follow me. You want to see compassion in action? Follow me. You want to know God better? Follow me. Have you ever said that to someone? I've never said that. But Paul says it six different times in the New Testament. Follow me. Did he think he was this perfect Christian? I don't think that's not what's going on here at all. In verse 12, he, he says, I've not arrived at my spiritual completion yet. And yet he tells these believers to follow his example, imitate him, and really the attitude that he has in the spiritual life. It's not a general call to be holy or, or to be a missionary. But I think it's rather an intimate call. And, and he says, look at my heart attitudes that I've been describing. Find your joy in the Lord as I have done. We need mentors. We need models and heroes. People who are farther, farther along in the spiritual journey who can point us to Christ. And without such input, we're going to trail off. It's very easy to end up in the wilderness. So two questions, who are you following? Who's ahead of you showing the way? Because we need people like that in our lives. We need to find someone who's finding joy in the Lord. 
and imitate them. Second question, who you, who's following you? Just think of a great parade. Jesus is in the front, the Paul's there, and we're all just kind of marching down, and we got our eyes ahead, but you know there's people behind you, and they're straining to catch a glimpse of the Savior. But he's so far ahead they can see him, and so they're crushing in. Who do they follow? They're following you. So look behind you every once in a while. Do you see the faces looking in your direction? They're following you, even though you don't realize it. Someone's watching you fight your personal battles. Right now, someone's cheering you on. Right now, someone admires your strength. Right now, someone is borrowing your faith because they have so little. Right now, someone believes you are the best Christian they know. Right now, someone is hanging tough because you're standing tall. And as they think of you, they're smiling. And right now, somebody cares that you make the right choices. We stay on the right path. Keep your eyes on the prize. Follow a good example. Check your direction. Follow someone faithful. Third thing out of this text, watch your heart. Verse 18, For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even in tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is, their shame, is in their shame. Their, their mind is set on earthly things. He says, you need to watch your heart, but why? Because you're surrounded by people who find their delight in their own salvation and they live in an entirely different way. They live as enemies of the cross. Be careful of those people. Now, who are these enemies of the cross? Oh, you've got lots of theories about who they are. Some will say Judaizers, the people who say you've got to you know, get circumcised, you've got to do the law, you've got to follow that if you're going to please God. On the other end of the spectrum, they're, they're the, the people who don't believe in any law. Just do whatever you want to. It's all okay. Everything's fine. And it doesn't really say who these people are. They do not appear to be believers, but the lang because the language is kind of harsh against them. They don't seem to be really a part of the Philippian church. But his point is clear. There is a great danger for us. Watch your heart. It is way too easy to get drawn away from the place of our joy in the Lord. We're not enemies. We are beloved children. But if we lose our first love, if we slip away from the joy of the pure gospel, if we begin to pride ourselves on our spiritual achievements, look at how far I'm down the path, or just the quality of our lives, if we become proud and the cross is calling us to humility, if we find our identity in our own accomplishments instead of in our salvation, then, folks, we're in danger. And the cross offers us joy in being loved by the Savior. 
But if we scrape around just to grasp some joy in life, because look what I've done, look at my degrees, look who I am. If we're looking for praise and respect from other people, we're in trouble. Not every relationship is good for you. You may be aware this morning of relationships in your life that are pulling you away from Jesus Christ. Romantic, friendship, on the job, neighbor, whatever. But I think Paul's point is clear. If a relationship is pulling you away from Jesus, break it off. They're enemies. Don't dilly-dally. No ifs, ands, or buts. Stop making excuses. You have to watch your heart. There are enemies all around who would love to lead you astray. Principle number four. Remember who you are. In verse 20, you begin with this wonderful contrast. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The enemies of the cross, they live for earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Those words, I think they had to have resonated very clearly with the Philippian believers because they were granted what? Roman citizenship. They lived 800 miles from the, from the imperial center of Rome. They lived in Philippi, but their citizenship was where? In Rome. Just like us, we live on earth but our citizenship, our hearts are in heaven. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Paul mentions two evidences of our, earthly, of our heavenly citizenship. First, proof you're eager for the return of Christ. He says the phrase, eagerly await. It has the idea of a child standing on tiptoe, looking out the window, expecting daddy to come home from work after a long day. Eagerly awaiting. And second, he says, we're expecting a glorious transformation of our earthly bodies. Transform is, is the word from which is the root of our English word schematic, which doesn't make sense right off the surface. But it means a diagram or a drawing of the inner workings of a device. And he's going to transform this body. He's got the schematic ready to go. He's going to re-schematic us that we are re-engineered to be like his glorious body. Someone wrote, we will be raised and beautified. I like the sound of that. I really want to be raised, but it would be great to be beautified while he's at it. <laughs> and he will do it by the, the same power that enables him to run the entire universe. No more glasses, no more COVID, no more... ICUs, no more strokes or false teeth or diabetes, none of that. And no more death. Then he draws his conclusion in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you can hear the tenderness, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, Three things stand out to me. First, 
Paul, as he turns and begins to think about them individually, the tone is so warm. It's so encouraging. And second, he's not urging them to stand firm in the Lord. He says stand firm in this way. What way? I think he's saying that he's given them what they need to stand firm. And it's not just a warm encouragement, just to try as hard as you can. But it's take all of this stuff that I've just told you. Take it to heart. Live it. And the joy in the Lord should propel us, therefore, to stand in the Lord. They're tied together. And third, Paul referred to them as his joy and crown. It was their partnership that made them a great joy to him. And a day is going to come. Paul assured that the, that the Lord would give him a reward for his time of ministry among the Philippian church. And so he uses this figure of speech to say, you know, you, you guys, you're my crown. And I think we have to read this, un, this entire chapter under the heading that opened it in, in Philippians 3.1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We are to live life knowing that Jesus Christ is our salvation. But we are also to live, the life, live life as if he is the goal of our lives, that we are pursuing him. Because if we're surrounded by enemies of the cross, they will be destroyed. But we've got a heavenly citizenship, a savior. So rejoice. That's how you can rejoice in everything. You can win the prize. If you'll check your direction, if you'll follow someone faithful, if you'll watch your heart, if you'll remember who you are. A woman had been diagnosed with cancer, given three months to live. Her doctor said, you need to start making preparations, which is not bad advice for all of us, actually. So she asked her pastor to come over. She wanted to discuss with him her final wishes. She told him the song she wanted sung. She told him the scriptures she wanted to read. She told him what she wanted to be wearing. We don't do open caskets very often, but this was an open casket. It was planned to be. She told her pastor that she wanted to be buried with her favorite Bible. Everything was in order. The pastor's ready to leave, and then it, it strikes her. I forgot one thing, pastor. It's very important. Oh, what's that? This is very important. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Bury me with a fork. It's very important. He looked at the woman, didn't quite know what to say. I'm puzzled, he said. And she said this, in all my years of attending church socials and functions, there was always food. It's always food. And my favorite part was when whoever was clearing away the dishes of the main course would lean over to me and they would say, you can keep my fork. Keep the fork. It was my favorite part because I knew then that something better was coming. And it wasn't jello. And it wasn't pudding. It was something substantial. 
So I just want people to see me there in my casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? (laughs) And then I want you to tell them, something better is coming, so keep your fork. He cried a little bit. He hugged her. A few weeks later, at the funeral, he's standing at the head, and everybody's walking by. What's the deal with the fork? And he just smiled. During the message, he said, you know, you've been wondering about this fork in her hand. And I said to her that I would tell them, tell you all what it means. And he told his people how he himself could not stop thinking about the fork and that they probably wouldn't stop thinking about it either. Because he said, you know what? She understood resurrection better than I did. The next time you reach for your fork, something better is coming. And I think that's the whole point of how we can rejoice in the Lord. This is is what he's saying. You go for the gold, you go for it. You completely live your life with the goal that something better is coming. So it doesn't matter what they do to me. It doesn't matter what disease I have or what struggles I have. There's a better resurrection if I stay faithful. And that's what he's saying. Stand firm in the Lord. Have this attitude like I had. And the only way you'll have it is if you're a person of the fork. (laughs) That's our hope. Will we live our life ready for the fork? Let's pray, and we'll let Paul pick a song that goes with that. (laughs) Father in heaven, we get so caught up in the struggles of life. And life is hard, and there are moments when we want to give up, but we all eat regularly. And so when we want to give up, let us look down and remember the fork. And you're telling us to keep it because we know something better is coming. Let us stand firm in that. Let us stand firm in the hope that your word provides that we might rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Help us this week to press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.